We're continuing our series, and we're in the book of Esther this morning. We've taken a look at Nehemiah. Last week, we took a look at Job. And so today, we're taking a look at this one called Esther. I've told the story before of uh, how God called me into what I'm doing today, how God has called me into full-time Christian work and full-time church work. And, And I've told bits and pieces of that story here, and I've told it in other places and that sort of thing. I became a Christian at a young age. I was in first grade. I remember I was in a classroom in a Christian school in first grade when, when I said yes to Jesus and accepted him as my Savior. But like a lot of us, I went through many years from that point in time until I was about 12 where my own walk with God was pretty stagnant. I think that may be true of a lot of young people. It was pretty much in neutral. I didn't really know all that much. I didn't know how to respond to God and that sort of thing. But when I was 12, God began to waken me up spiritually. And so he began teaching me things. I became more and more aware. And God would do things that made a profound impact in terms of my spiritual life and ultimately my calling to do what I'm doing today. And one of those times was on a retreat. Uh, our, our youth pastor, who is Pastor Jeff at Low Country Community Church, and um, that tells you how old both of us are. But uh, anyway, he was my youth pastor, and he took us on a retreat, get this, to Awanata, which some of you have been to Awanata up in North Carolina, beautiful, beautiful retreat center for youth and, and that sort of thing. And we went up there, and the theme of the week was how to raise your parents. <laughs> It was great. I remember it. How to raise your parents. That's a good idea, Rob, by the way. Anyway, uh, how to raise your parents. And so he had a whole weekend of, you know, how to interact with mom and dad. And what does the Bible say about it? It was a fantastic weekend. But one of the things that he did was just, just was fascinating is he had all of the parents write letters to all the students. And we didn't know about it. And so about halfway through the weekend, he said, okay, I want you to find a quiet place and, and I've got something for you to open. And we opened up letters from our parents. And man, for for some of these students, that was incredible. I'm sure for others, it meant opening up some ugly stuff that they had to deal with too. Um, But we read these letters from our parents. And and I remember opening my dad's and it was great. And it was just, you know, he's a godly man and helped. But I opened up my mom's and my mom's just had a profound impact on me. And I remember reading the words. I remember it as clear as it was today. I remember reading the words that said, your grandmother and I have been praying since your birth that you would accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and that you would be called into ministry. I'm I'm 15 years old, 12 years old, something like that. And I'm just like, oh my goodness. My mom's been praying for this since I I was born. And and so that started, kind of sparked a fire in me to pursue full-time Christian ministry. But, but here's the thing about my story, and everybody's story is different in terms of their calling in life, their vocational calling, whether it's ministry or whether it's in the business place or whether it's in education or whatever the case may be. Everybody's story is a little bit different. Mine started with a spark and a wildfire, and then it went out for 10 years. It was non-existent for 10 years of my life. And, and I, I mean, it was as clear as day that I felt on that weekend that God was calling me to full-time Christian ministry. And I want you to catch this. By the end of that weekend, the fire had gone out. I had people in my life that were naysayers. Do you have naysayers in your life? They can be destructive. And even though they may be well-meaning, they, they can be destructive. But that was my calling into the ministry. 
whether you're called into the ministry or not, we all have periods of times where we're on fire with God and we get that spark and things are going well and we're excited maybe about our faith or maybe it's new in our lives so it's fresh. And then things happen. Life happens. Disappointment seeps in. We, we, we come upon circumstances and people that discourage us. And all of a sudden, this newfound zeal that we once had has just gone out. And it's like a forest fire that has been emblazed and the firemen have come and they've spread the water over it all. And that's the way it was for me in my calling. All of a sudden I came to a place and there had been many times in my calling where I literally felt like I had no purpose for the kingdom of God whatsoever. We all in Hilton had liked golf. Well, some of you like golf. Some of you play golf. Some of you enjoy the fact that you live on a golf course. Some of you, it's an irritation, I understand. But for those of us who like golf, there are some great golf stories. I came across this one a few months ago that I, I had never heard. It's a story about how President Ulysses S. Grant was introduced to this new game of golf back then. And Ulysses S. Grant was introduced because a, a Scottishman, this big Scottishman, came over and introduced him to this game. And so the Scotsman teed up a golf ball real high, put it in the ground, and told the president about this game. And, and you know, the president's like, okay, so that's great. So show me what you do. And this big old Scotsman took a big wide swing and hit the ground, and dirt flew everywhere, all over Ulysses S. Grant's beard. <laughs> and the ball stayed right there on the ground on top of the tee. Have you been there? <laughs> I've been there. And the Scotsman took another swing. I took that golf club and took another swing. And boom, another piece of dirt flies up right in the president's face. How embarrassing this is for the Scotsman. Six times it happened. Six times in a row it happened. And President Ulysses S. Grant waited patiently through all of these tries. And he finally said quietly so that people could hear, there seems to be a fair amount of exercise in this game, but I don't see the point of the ball. <laughs> Some of us have been there on the golf course, haven't we? I don't see the point of the ball. But we get there in our lives. We get there in our Christian lives. I don't see the point of my life with Christ. What am I here to do? What is my purpose? I've become a Christian. I've given my life to him. I've given my faith to him. I've given my eternity to him. But now what? Now what? Well, all of you may not be called to full-time Christian service. Some of you may be, and some of you who are young, whether you're 15 or 50, you may be feeling like God's leading you that way, and that's great. That was something I felt 23 years ago. Wow, that sounds old. But anyway, that's what I felt 23 years ago, and some of you may be feeling like that, but I want you to catch this. I want you all to hear this. Being involved in Christian service isn't just for those who are called to full-time vocational service for God. If you are a Christ follower, I want you to get this, you are called to serve him. If you're a Christ follower, you're called to serve him. Ephesians 2 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for a purpose. Do you get that? that our creation and our service are inextricably linked. They cannot be separated. And so if you're in here and you've had that moment in time where you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are called to ministry. 
It may not be a full-time vocational thing, but you are called to ministry. We are created. We are a workmanship. That word literally in the Greek means a piece of art. God is working on us to serve him. That is our purpose in life, is to serve him. And sometimes life discourages us, and sometimes we get down, and sometimes a sin may lead to a lifestyle, and then guilt sets in, or someone says something, and all of a sudden we think and we buy into the lie that because we aren't perfect that we can't serve. And that is absolutely a lie. It's absolutely a lie to think that just because our zeal has gone a little bit and just because of the fact that we may not be perfect, that we can't serve God, we can serve him. In fact, if we're Christ followers, we're called to serve him. We're called to do that. The story of today's old school character, I pray, will give you some reminder of that call, that service always follows faith every time service always follows faith if you have your bibles you can turn to esther if you don't the words will be on the screen this morning now you may have your notes back in job from last week still just turn one book back okay so right back there in right about the middle of the old testament uh, it's a little bit before psalms and just right after uh, ezra and nehemiah is esther and we're going to consider how god today used this very normal person, this very normal young girl named Hadassah. That was her given name. And, her, and then she became known as Esther. Not a lot of people understand or know. We don't know exactly why she changed her name. It may have been something that was uh, more uh, described who she was as a person. She was an orphan who was taken in by presumably her older cousin, Mordecai. In fact, a lot of theologians believe that perhaps he was an uncle and not a cousin, but we'll go with cousin because that's what the NIV says, uh, my Bible says. And, and so this book that was written was written about this young Jewish girl who lived in Persia. Now, to understand the story, I just want to back up for a moment and explain the fact that the Jewish people, and, and Esther was uh, Jewish, she was Hebrew, uh, the Jewish people had been scattered for years. And if you understand the, the cycle of the Jewish people, it's up and down with God. We've talked about that before, where uh, uh, they're obedient to God and he blesses them, and then they go into disobedience and, and he does some things to correct them. And then they go up and they're obedient to him, and then they fall off and he does some things to correct them. Well, in Jeremiah, it describes the fact that the Jewish people moved back to their homeland. And so, but there were a lot of people, for whatever reason, who were Jewish, who stayed in Persia. And they stayed there in that foreign land. And presumably, at a very early age, uh, uh, Esther's mother and father passed away, and so she was taken in by Mordecai. And the Bible says that Mordecai treated Esther just like one of his own daughters. The Bible goes on to describe Esther, and it says this. She was lovely in form and features. <laughs> she was very beautiful. She was a very, very beautiful woman. Now, this story is not just a story of this beautiful woman's influence on a king. There's so much more to the story than just that. In fact, I believe that this is probably one of the most dramatic stories in all of the Bible. It's really amazing, and we could spend weeks on it, but the first chapter of Esther describes a Persian king. His name is Xerxes, 
And Xerxes is, is having a, a, a party. He's having a feast, and the Persians were known for their great wild feast. And he was having this one particular feast that his wife, whose name was Vashti, uh, she had asked him to put on. And so they put on this great big feast, and the Bible says in the first chapter that Xerxes was in high spirits from wine. So this party was getting a little out of hand for King Xerxes, and he called and he had his wife Vashti sent to him so that he could show off her beauty to his subjects. Now, we don't know all that's involved in that, but Vashti said no, which was a huge mistake for Vashti. And we find out that King Xerxes, he proves himself to be a one-strike king in terms of his relationship with Vashti. He divorced her and he banished her from the kingdom. That was it. He had had enough. And so Vashti is banished from the kingdom. Now, in that day and age, a king and a kingdom without a queen was hardly a king and a kingdom at all. So King Xerxes looks through all the land and he sends people out looking all through the land for the most beautiful women in all of Persia. And he asks that over the course of a year that his subjects find the most beautiful woman in all of Persia. And so there are several different people that gather together a large number of women and they, they begin to narrow them down. And actually the Bible describes how they do that. And so I'm not going to go into that. But it was basically like the Persian equivalent of American Idol, okay? They took a big group of people and they started narrowing them down. Or maybe the bachelor or the bachelorette, anyway. And uh, so they narrow them down. And finally, Esther finds herself in the position where King Xerxes thinks that she is the most beautiful one in the land, and he makes her, Esther, this simple Jewish girl, his queen. And all of a sudden, Esther is the second most influential person in all of the land. Now, it's important to note at this point that Esther is not Jewish. <laughs> in Persia, there was literally a specific law that said that King Xerxes had to marry someone who was of Persian descent. It was illegal for him to marry someone who was not Jewish. And the story goes that Mordecai, who was essentially Esther's dad, said to Esther, okay, you're going to be in this Persian beauty contest, but you're not going to tell King Xerxes the fact that you're Jewish. You're not going to reveal to him your nationality. And so we wonder why in the world Mordecai would do this, and we don't exactly know, but I will say this. Mordecai was a godly, godly man. We'll see that in just a moment. And it makes me wonder if his motives here were absolutely altruistic. I don't think he had any negative, any uh, malice uh, in his mind when he was encouraging Esther not to reveal her nationality. He may have been simply thinking to himself, you know what, it might be a good idea if there is a Jewish queen so that in case something ever happens to our people that we have someone in influence. He may have simply been thinking in times of war or famine, it would be great to have someone near the throne that could influence. Or it could have been absolutely altruistic, and he could have said, you know, it's just good that we have a godly person who is the queen for this king. Well, act two of this story, we find Haman. And Haman was a whole different character. He was uh, basically one of the king's right-hand men. And Haman, in fact, became so powerful that the king passed an edict that all the subjects in all the king's court and in Susa and in all of Persia would bow down when Haman entered the room. This was extremely unusual. 
But the king thought so much of him, even though he didn't have any royal bloodline, that people would bow down and worship, essentially, Haman when he entered the room. And all of Persia would do this when Haman entered the room, except for one man, Mordecai. Mordecai, in this story, who is Esther's adopted father, her cousin, he would not bow down. The reason he wouldn't bow down is because he was a godly Jewish man and he knew that there would be no other gods. The, the Ten Commandments said there would be no other gods before you. And he wouldn't worship anything or anyone else, even to the point that he would take whatever Haman brought as a result of him not bowing down. And he stood on principle and he didn't bow down in front of Haman. Well, this enraged Haman. I mean, he became intensely mad, and he even thought about, Esther says, he even thought about killing Mordecai. But he knew that probably wouldn't be a good idea, since this was the new queen's cousin and really father, probably wouldn't have come back good on Haman. Instead, he decides to do something so much worse. He decides that he's going to kill every person of Jewish descent in all of the kingdom of Persia. And most theologians tell us that about 75,000 Jewish people were murdered under Haman. And so Mordecai finds out about this, and he goes into mourning, and he begins to talk to Esther about what is the next step. What do we do? Here you are, Esther. You are the queen of all of Persia, and Haman most certainly is going to do more damage. In fact, Haman went to Mordecai. I want you to catch this. He went to, the ki- or he went to Xerxes, the king, and he tricked the king into passing an edict that all of the Jews, the remaining Jews that were in Persia, were to be killed. And so they were at a pinch point. They were at a point where they needed to do something, and they didn't know exactly what to do. And we see this exchange between Mordecai and Esther, and they go back and forth. What would Esther do at this point? Here she was, a brand-new wife, a brand-new queen, All of a sudden, one day, literally, she's a simple Jewish girl, and the next day, she's queen of all the land. What would she do? Would she keep quiet and just let things go? Or would she say something and turn things around? What exactly would she do? Well, we'll get to the rest of the story in a few moments, but I want to consider a couple things that we can learn from this person, this queen who was really not meant to be a queen who is an unlikely heroine. First of all, the first lesson that we can learn is that God orders our steps. God orders our steps, doesn't he? We're not in control of every aspect of the course of our lives. We're not in control of every aspect. I want you to catch that. We're not in control of every aspect of the course of our lives. We don't know this, but I don't believe Esther woke up one day as a teenager and said, you know what? I I think I want to be queen. I think I'm going to pursue a life goal of becoming queen. But God had a different plan, didn't he? God had a different plan. She may have just been a simple Jewish girl that said, I just want to be a simple Jewish girl, a part of Jewish society here in Persia. Look specifically at how this plays out, chapter 2, verses 8. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. 
The girl pleased him and won favor immediately. He provided her with many beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. One day, she's a normal Jewish girl, and the next day, she is on a crash course to becoming queen of all the land. Skip down to verse 15. When the turn came for Esther to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. Does this sound like someone who has delusions of grandeur? Does this sound like someone who wants this royalty? Does this sound like someone who's full of pride? It doesn't to me. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th in the month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any other woman, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then he threw a big party and announced her as queen. Now, I would imagine that Esther wanted to be used by God. But I would also imagine that she probably never imagined it happening this way. She probably never imagined God using her this way. And I think that's true of Christ followers in general. There's probably not a Christ follower who says, I really don't want to be used by God. I, I, I don't want to be used by him. I just want to be a simple Christian and not be used by him. Very few of us would say that. But you know what we do say? We do say, I'm going to trust God, and I'm going to allow God to move in my financial life. I'm going to allow him to move in my health life. I'm going to allow him to move in my family life. But we forget to allow room for God to move in the course of our lives and in our vocations and in our leadings. We forget to allow God room to move and to order our steps. You know what it means to have God order our steps? It means that we put him first that he becomes the number one influencer in our lives. Shortly after I um, felt that calling to ministry, I told you by that weekend, by the end of that weekend, I was discouraged about it. And that flame that had fired up burned out very quickly. And you know what happened is very quickly, I, I allowed other people and I allowed outside influences and I allowed the, the, uh, um, the desire for different things to influence my decisions more than I allowed God to influence my decision. He had called me to do something, and I was at that point in time saying, no, 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 no. That can't be right. That can't be right. And we often allow other people and other things to influence our lives more than we allow God. If we are going to be Christ followers who are obedient and want to be used by him, we have to make room for God to work in our lives. Proverbs 16, 9 says this, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. It's God that determines our steps. And whether you're 15 or 50 in here, he is going to determine your steps. He is the one who's in charge of your life and is ordering your steps. Proverbs 20, 24 says this, a man's, a, man's, uh, a man's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his own way? Are you having difficulty understanding why in the world you're at the place that you are right now? It's God who orders your steps. I didn't understand why God allowed me to get a job in sales when I got out of college. 
I had a pre-law degree, and I couldn't get a high enough score on the LSAT to get into law school, but I was called to the ministry, but I wasn't pursuing that because I had other influences. I was confused, and so I got a job in sales, and I was terrible at it. I hated it. You know what happens when you're terrible at something and you hate it? You make no money. Anyway, and so I made no money, and things were going just terrible, and I'd forgotten about my calling in life. And it wasn't until I realized that my steps are directed by the Lord. And you know what? Years and years later, I realized God used that job in sales to shape me for what I'm doing today. God may use your past, whether good, bad, or ugly, and he may be shaping you exactly for what you're doing today or what he has planned for you for tomorrow. There's a second thing that we can learn. God may open up doors for us that we could have never opened up for ourselves. God may open up doors for us that we could never have opened up for ourselves. God may place us in extraordinary positions to be used by him. He did it with Esther. Take a look. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, this is after Haman had killed all these Jewish people, he sent back his answer. Don't think that just because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. And I think Mordecai was essentially saying, Esther, if you don't speak now, our window of opportunity of escaping this may be closing. But, he says, you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, and I want you to catch this phrase, this last part of verse 14. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. God ordered Esther's steps, but he also opened up the door of opportunity. And let's face it, we all don't get to be number two in a kingdom, do we? We don't all get to be the queen or the king, or we all don't have the opportunity to be the vice president of a company or the principal of a high school, and we all don't have opportunity to serve in full-time Christian service and be on the mission field and be a pastor. But you know what? Those extraordinary opportunities that I'm speaking of may be right in front of you where you are today. They may be in the place that you work. It may be a coworker who's going through a terrible divorce right now. And they need help from someone who knows the best way to find help. It may be from a family member who's going through a financial crisis, and you may be the one that helps answer some of their questions. You see, extraordinary opportunities does not necessarily mean extraordinary position. We can serve God right where we are right now. Helping a coworker, extraordinary. Guiding a family member through crisis, extraordinary. Helping a, another student that's going through a tough time, extraordinary. Spending 22 hours in one home with three kids all day long, weeks on end. Believe me, extraordinary. And we don't look for those places that God leads us, and we don't look for those places where he opens up opportunities for us to serve him and have influence with others. If you're a Christ follower and are allowing God to order your steps, you may be right now in an extraordinary position to serve him. And some of you may have extraordinary 
positions in the future. We need to look out for those things. But there's a third lesson that we can learn. There's a third lesson that we can learn. It is our choice to be available and willing to be used by God when he gives us opportunities. It is our choice to be available and willing to be used by God when he gives us opportunities. You see, God may order our steps and he may open up opportunities for us to have influence, but it is up to us whether we choose to be used by him or not. I have the question asking me often, where, where does God's sovereignty meet our free will? Um, we have five minutes left, so I'm not going to unpack that right now. That's a whole other sermon series. But you know, I believe, to put it very shortly, this picture of Esther is where that takes place. God's sovereignty, ordering her steps, putting her in a position to have influence, met her free will when she said, yes, I will go to the king, and I will speak on behalf of my people. And it was dangerous. The book of Esther tells us that Xerxes could have killed any person who walked into his inner court, and here comes Esther walking in to the inner court, and he could have struck her dead. But the Bible goes on to say if he raises his scepter to the person that walks in, that they will be met with grace. And she walks in, and the Bible describes how he raised his scepter, and she was able to tell him about Haman. And she was able to convince King Xerxes that this needed to be changed, that the Jewish people needed to be protected. And he wrote an edict that said that all the people in Persia, that there was a day that the Jewish people could have retribution. And even today, the Jewish people celebrate the Feast of Purim, celebrating this great day that the Jewish people essentially were freed in that moment. And God used the most ordinary person to save his people from genocide. He can use you and me to influence others, can't he? He can use us to influence others, but we have to say yes. We have to say yes. And sometimes saying yes is not comfortable. In fact, sometimes it's downright dangerous to say yes to God. I remember the place that I was at in our house in Atlanta when Cynthia and I prayed about and said yes to God about moving to New York City. I mean, some people thought we were crazy to move to New York City to help start a church. And then those people up in New York City said we were crazy when we said we're going to move to Hilton Head Island to start a church. Serving God is not easy work. It's not always safe work. And you may be in here and your heart may be restless about serving him. He may be working on you. you. You may say in your heart, God, you've been leading me forever to work over in island kids in our former promised land. You, you, may be, you, you may be in here today and God has made it absolutely clear that you're supposed to help out in promised land. You talk about not you know, safe work, dangerous work. That's working over there with those kids. I'm kidding. It's great. <laughs> Diane's going to kill me. <laughs> But you may be saying, no, no, I don't want to do that. God's calling me to be a life group facilitator. No, no. Yeah, I know I'm gifted to do this. Yeah, I know that I could probably take a DVD and help lead a group of people in a discussion. But no, I don't want to. God, please don't make me do that. 
and we're restless in our heart. It may be simply talking to someone who you know needs Christ as their Savior. And you're saying, no, no, no. Church, it's time for us to be a people who are like Esther. It's time for us to be a people who say yes to God. We're on the verge of some great things. We have a new facility in our future. You'll be hearing about that in October. It's probably six months, four months away, something like that, hopefully sooner. We're on the verge of going out in our community and serving our community in remarkable ways. We've got our new membership class today. There are so many things that we're about ready to do, but we need to be a people who say yes when God leads. Are you restless this morning about an area that God is leading you to do? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Esther, this young Jewish girl who never said no to you, God. She never once said, ah, I don't know that I can do that. I don't know if I want to do that. God, she was a willing servant, and you guided her steps. You put her in a position of influence, and God, today you're doing the same thing with us. It might not be uh, 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 as dramatic. It might not be as high on, on a ladder on an organizational chart, but God, you are in control And Father God, I pray that you would give us, your people, the courage and the conviction and the character to say yes to that area that you're leading. Whether it's speaking to somebody about Christ or inviting them to church, or whether it's going across and serving a meal to a neighbor who's sick, or whether it's serving in island kids or being a life group facilitator. God, if you are are guiding us, I pray that in our restlessness that we would be able to rest in you And as a result, that we would be able to say yes to you. Father, help us to do that. Help us to have the courage to do what's potentially dangerous. And I pray that in the strong name of Jesus.